Hello and welcome back to Talking Migration. We've had a bit of a summer break, but are back with new thought-provoking episodes. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield, as well as our new supporter, the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. In this episode, we will be discussing two new but very different books, one academic book on populism and one fictional book dealing with the situation in Calais. First off, I talked to Professor Ruth Wodak at the University of Lancaster and the University of Vienna about her new book, The Politics of Fear, What Right-Wing Populist Discourses Mean. Ruth Wodak is an expert on populist and nationalist discourses, and in her latest book she asks why right-wing populist politics is seemingly moving to the centre stage of politics. Apart from talking about her book, I also took the opportunity to ask her about the upcoming Austrian presidential election, where the two candidates of the Populist Freedom Party and the Green Party are to meet in an election yet again on December 4th. The Green Party candidate narrowly won in May earlier this year, but the election was annulled after it was found that some votes had not been properly counted. Before getting into the prospect of potentially having an elected populist as president of a European country, I asked Ruth Waddock to tell us a bit about her new book and what she means by the politics of fear. Okay, so this this book is the sort of outcome of uh, more than 20 years of research on which I uh, emerged in the late 1980s. and due to the fall of the Iron Curtain and due to the leadership of this label, economic uh, migrants uh, who own better life instead of staying home and, you know, uh, and the of xenophobic um, discourse at that. And many puzzles which uh, this party then, uh, you know, wrote and, and into their election campaigns actually created this this uh, emergence of what we now call highization of Europe. That means that this kind of populist rhetoric coupled with very strong nationalistic propaganda uh, started um, infiltrating many other countries and parties. Uh, the only other two parties at that time right-wing populist parties, which had been already quite successful, was the Front National in France, under the father of Marine Le Pen, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, who was certainly extreme right and uh, didn't shy away from Holocaust denials and uh, very anti-Semitic rhetoric, and the Swiss Volkspartei, which uh, at that time was the biggest right-wing populist party, uh, led by Blocher, uh, also with a very strong anti-migrant campaign. So basically, we have to go back to that time because I think the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Iron Curtain established or gave gave way to a new other uh, because up to that point, you know, Cold War, there was a clear division, you know, between East and West. But now, you know, the, um, it, it was just a new political landscape. And um, I think that uh, 
many people don't realize that this goes back uh, to that time. They, many people are uh, quite surprised and astonished with the rise of UKIP or the Sweden Democrats or even Trump now in the US uh, and dehistoricize uh, the development of this movement and also of this sort of uh, very renationalizing ideology. Uh, and, uh, to, you know, already at that time, this politics of fear was quite apparent. Uh, at that time, sort of the other ring was directed against uh, the migrants from the East. Uh, and uh, basically, as I just said, from the former uh, Eastern Bloc countries. And the fear that... Uh, uh, the real Austrian, Swiss, or French, etc., would lose jobs, uh, and that the social security system, the health service, etc., the pension system uh, would break down. And um, what we see ever since, uh, which I cannot now summarize in, in much detail, but I write about that in the book, uh, because I really think that one has to grasp this historical development as well. Uh, we've had many other tipping points, one of which, of course, is 9-11 and the start of sort of a massive secure, securitization of the public sphere. So the fear of terrorism uh, and ever more surveillance and... Uh, trying to keep others out and establishing new tests for citizenship, etc., etc., uh, have, of course, enhanced that politics of fear. And uh, in, since 2008, uh, we are confronted with massive new crises, uh, with the financial crisis, the euro crisis, the Greek crisis, the refugee crisis, uh, and uh, all these crises uh, have been instrumentalized to create even new uh, fierce and dangerous scenarios. So even as we know in countries, and now I come to uh, sort of our current situation, even in countries where there are almost no refugees, like in Poland or Hungary, uh, the fear of being overwhelmed by those strangers now coming not from sort of Europe but from the Middle East uh, and our, and Muslims uh, has become enormous and the fear is always greater in countries or in locations where there are no strangers or very few. This is also an old phenomenon. Uh, but I think it would be too short-sighted to reduce the rise of the right wing only with the financial crisis. You have to explain it uh, sort of with uh, massive unemployment, etc. Because Austria, Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden are countries which have not been struck by the financial crisis in the same way like, let's say, Greece or Spain or even the UK. Uh, but uh, what we uh, can observe there is much more uh, identity politics and the fear uh, of sort of losing uh, one's national identity, uh, losing the homeland. 
And so we see uh, a rise of renationalizing tendencies coupled with what I call in my book border and body politics. And in my book, I, gi I give many examples from all over Euro Europe and also from uh, the United States of the way uh, this homeland rhetoric is instrumentalized to keep others out, but also to create dangerous scenarios where those parties then um, sort of establish themselves and try to represent themselves as the saviors of the people. Uh, and it is important to also emphasize that they define who belongs to us, to the people. So they speak for the real British, the real Austrians, the, the true Finns, etc. Uh, and they they define the people as a homogeneous demos, as a homogeneous folk, in contrast to what we now obviously uh, observe in all European countries, uh, diversity. And uh, in that way, they are anti-pluralist and at the same time also anti-elitist. And that is sort of the second point I make in, in my book, uh, what I call the arrogance of ignorance, um, that they sort of emphasize going back to one's common sense, to one's intuition, to uh, emotions. We, we don't need experts anymore or authorities. And uh, basically everybody knows what is best for them. And in that way, it's most visible by, with Trump, the appeal to sort of this common sense to, to this people who all know, uh, quoting Trump, how to make, make America great again. That is also part of, and parcel of this um, ideology. And of course, then Trump st style, styles himself and profiles himself as the person who will save the people. So basically, I, in the book, I show these patterns and I then deconstruct many details of what I call the micropolitics of fear, how this is being produced and reproduced and performed and reperformed in every day uh, in many genres, from written to visual genres to social media and, uh, and also how much the traditional media actually reinforce this kind of simplistic policy. Yes, okay? so that leads me on to, uh, to a couple of questions. So, um, so why are these populist discourses so, so successful? Uh, and related to this, how they sort of use the media to their advantage or what the role of the media is in, in like you said, reproducing those discourses. If you can maybe give some examples or why you think um, this has been so successful. Well, uh, I, I think to quote Sigmund Baumann, we live in a time of huge insecurity and uh, uh, a lot of, of uncertainty. And uh, if people, I mean, now I don't want to just say globalization, etc. Yeah, these are just such big abstract uh, uh, phenomena. But of course, uh, in all this uh, sort of uncertainty, 
uh, which again is not new, we've always lived in some kind of uncertainty, but um, now these refugees come from uh, sort of far away, uh, there are many wars, uh, nobody knows uh, how and who will, will sort of cope with those uh, crises, as I've already uh, listed. Um, it's very simple to find a scapegoat for these huge worries. It's a very simple explanation in the sense of uh, promising if we take um, the refugees or the migrants away, uh, then everything will turn uh, better again, uh, and sort of kind of promising to turn the clock back, yeah, with a certain retrospective nostalgia. People are sort of uh, would like to um, live again in in you know secure nation states where everybody's white, where they know everybody, where there's no where there's no diversity, where there's no problem of communication. And uh, this completely illusionary promise of, uh, you know, sort of if we can, if we have no more refugees or migrants, then we, we will be safe again and uh, everything will be like it used to be. Um, that is a very... A persuasive message and it's a very simplistic message instead of confronting the complex roots uh, and causes of you know what has happened the inequality uh, the, the the policies which um, have led to all these crises it's much easier to scapegoat and exclude a group and to promise hope by sort of um, um, establishing the safety again. And that is very persuasive uh, because it's not just fear, it's fear leading to hope. And one of the most famous spin doctors in the U.S. of the Republican Party, Frank Luntz, uh, once wrote uh, as, sort of as a recipe to, to win votes and elections, he said, well, first we have to establish fear and then hope mm. uh, with, you know, these simplistic promises. Mm. Uh, so that is basically, uh, it, it sounds very simple, uh, but that is how it, it works best. Uh, and um, it's difficult as a politician uh, to basically explain that there is no simple way out, that things will take a long time, that they need a lot of negotiations, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. So um, that's why uh, this this uh, seems to work very well. Plus, there are first of all legitimate reasons, of course, for fear. There has been terrorism. It's just a much more complex situation than just the refugees who have suddenly come in. Um, and, uh, there, and also there are people who have uh, lost out, yeah, who feel uh, alienated from uh, the, the political system, who feel that they have not been cared for enough. And again, that's not surprising. In the UK, if you look how many benefits have been cut, uh, uh, you know, and how much poverty exists and how 
uh, inequality has grown, that is also not surprising. Uh, so there's also a lot of um, totally understandable anger. And that can be appealed to by such simplistic messages. So what do you think the role of the mainstream parties is here? So um, have they, you, you say it's, it's difficult for them to, to get a more sort of complex message across, but is that the... Uh, only sort of failing or um, is it that mainstream parties have found it difficult to just generally counter these populist discourses or is it uh, or is it maybe that they actually buy into them themselves to some extent uh, if, I think that um, the mainstream parties and of course again that you can generalize yeah, and you uh, the different countries have different contexts traditions problems uh, histories and uh, in that way if I just think now of countries I know best which basically is Austria and the UK because I've lived there and I live here um, it is obvious that in Austria the mainstream parties uh, have not been really accommodating to new developments uh, that is also regionally different for example the big cities, and that is true both for London and Vienna, I think, uh, but um, have changed enormously and have become cosmopolitan, very diverse, and uh, um, in, in many ways uh, have changed enormously. On the other hand, in, in non-urban uh, regions, um, the development is very different. There's much unemployment, especially also, uh, let's say, in the north of England. There's a big difference between the north and south. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, um, in, in Austria, it's certainly the case that that wasn't acknowledged enough by the political parties, mainstream political parties. And uh, that, you know, having been in power for a long time, there is sort of an a own dynamic uh, of um, sort of being very much centered on power and their own uh, little problems and blame games, etc. And not having understood uh, what, what the financial crisis and what those new developments have actually meant both for the middle class and even for people who are much poorer and and uh, basically have lost out. So the, in the middle classes right now, and that was very apparent in the recent elections in Austria all around the country, um, are afraid of losing out. So they haven't lost out yet, but they are very frightened of losing out and uh, they, this fear of losing out, possibly having to give something away to those new people who come in have been uh, a very sort of uh, big reason for the right, for voting uh, for the right-wing populists. And the, the workers who have lost out because there's innovation, new, new technologies, um, basically uh, migrants uh, come and are possibly paid work for less pay, etc. 
have lost out. Many people have lost out. So I think there are many, many reasons uh, for uh, you know the the success of those parties. One and for uh, sort of the the problems of the mainstream parties who have not really catered uh, to the needs of uh, their electorates. Mm. So lastly, I just wanted to ask you about the um, the upcoming uh, presidential election in Austria. So, so there was an election um, where the FPR candidate ju- uh, just lost out, and now there's a it was annulled, and there's a re-election. Um, mm-hmm. What can we expect from this election? How, will will there be the same result, or will the FPR candidate um, potentially win? And what will be the consequences if if that happened? Well, uh, I would be happy if I would know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, of right, course. <laughs> right now, nobody knows. Uh, and, uh, you know, right now there's a kind of paralysis. People are just waiting, yeah, because it has been postponed twice now, mm. uh, which is very frustrating for, for all of us. Uh, and, uh, and also, it's not really a repetition of the election because about 60,000 uh, young people, new young voters will be voting who have just turned 16 uh, since uh, May and many people have also died. Yeah? So it's of course not, not a real repetition and much has happened in between as well, uh, you know, on, on the European and global stages. So uh, I think it's very problematic actually to talk about a repetition mm. uh, and uh, it's also hard for the candidates yeah, because they've been campaigning for almost a year so it's also uh, you know, difficult to invent yourself in a new way all the time and uh, bring in new arguments and you know, new slogans etc. One thing which has really, I think, might work for the Green candidate is actually Brexit. Uh, because um, uh, the candidate of the FPÖ or the Freedom Party is very Eurosceptical, has always been. And immediately after Brexit, um, the candidate from the Freedom Party said, oh, now we need exit, right? Uh, Österreich exit. Mm. And um, then everybody saw that, that, you know, uh, Brexit didn't work that well. Uh, Nobody knows how it will work. And, of course, you know that much better than I do. Uh, And it has, uh, well, it has created a quite big mess. Uh, So then he sort of retracted very quickly and said, well, we really don't want exit and so forth. So it's been kind of a flip-flop campaign. Uh, whereas the green candidate, who's always been pro-European and pro-diversity, even though acknowledging that the EU has a lot of problems as this sort of neoliberal project, which it also is, um, has always had a continuity in his, uh, you know, campaign proposals. And in that way, they are now pointing to Brexit and saying, you know, look at this. And um, so, interestingly, uh, Brexit is now also being instrumentalized in different ways on on the Austrian stage. Uh, Then also, 
um, of course, the debate is being, politics is being culturalized a lot, yeah, sort of the whole Burka debate, the Burkini debate, but um, the main issues are the refugee uh, situation, and uh, that is really polarizing the country, uh, sort of uh, like, I think, almost everywhere in Europe. Mm. Um, and uh, there's very much support for the refugees in the Green Party and also in the Social Democratic Party and there's a very strong, I mean Austria has taken in, as you might know, last year 2015, 90,000 refugees were applying for refugee status, asylum status and uh, not all of them will be of uh, you know taken but uh, in contrast to the UK this is a very big number for a very small country and uh, now there is a maximum number of 37,500 37, for this year uh, which we haven't reached yet and so this is polarizing the country so the and this also really talks to my book a lot because the body and border politics are on center stage uh, so the FPÖ is talking about, you know, closing borders and, and building fences and no more foreigners and no strangers. And uh, the Green candidate is uh, saying we need to stay, uh, we need to do what um, the uh, Geneva Convention tells us to do and we need to take in asylum seekers, etc. Uh, and this has polarized the country and in the cities, the cities were voting mostly in, in overwhelmingly for the Green candidate and the countryside was overwhelmingly for the Freedom Party. It's very similar division of the electorate like in Brexit. Mm. Uh, apart from one difference, uh, that women... Uh, voted in a much bigger number for the Green candidate because the gender politics of the Freedom Party is very traditional and conservative, um, very much into, you know, uh, Tea Party and fundamentalist Christian uh, sort of uh, proposals against abortion, against uh, gays, against homophobic, etc. Uh, so um, there are many dimensions. And so, basically, predictions are difficult. Uh, I think the election will be decided by what the people of the mainstream conservative party will do. If they will vote either more for the right, yeah, going more to the Freedom Party, uh, or if they will, uh, as they are actually call themselves Christian social, uh, will vote for... Uh, open societies and more diversity. Uh, I think that they will be the decisive factor. That's really interesting, and I hadn't actually realised that it's been postponed again. Oh yes, it's it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. It's so embarrassing, you know, because <laughs> the, the glue of the envelopes didn't work. Oh, uh, oh, so yeah. <laughs> so we we actually all said, well, Austria can't even produce, you know, good envelopes. So it was. <laughs> very funny as well but also very embarrassing on the other hand i think it was the right decision to postpone it again because otherwise people would have really felt betrayed yeah sure um so it's difficult to say as i said you know many people are frustrated they might also stay home 
the question, but I think the decisive factor are the conservatives. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's not a candidate of their own. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, the most mainstream candidates have lost very strongly. Mm. And um, whereas the Social Democrats are supporting the Green candidate because it's kind of their ideology and worldview, uh, the conservatives are undecided and I guess they will split and many might stay home. So it's very difficult to say and you also ask what will happen. I think it's um, nothing much will happen immediately but it's a big symbolic issue. And of course politics is also a lot about symbols and you know symbolic decisions. So if the freedom party guy would win who actually endorses really right-wing extreme policies and you know uh, belongs to one of those dueling fraternities and believes in a pan-germanic uh, nation etc this would signal to the other right-wing populist and extreme parties that they can actually be elected president and uh, we have uh, the French election coming up. So, you know, there might really be quite, on the symbolic level, it might have a big impact. Same when the Green candidate wins, uh, which um, that would mean a Green candidate is electable and a, polity, a politics of unity and diversity is sort of wins against uh, a politics of exclusion. So both, so in both ways, it would have big symbolic consequences. To find out more about the work of Ruth Wodak, please visit our website talkimmigration.com. Now on to our next topic. Most people do have a vague idea of the situation in Calais, where thousands of migrants live in very poor conditions, trying to get from France to the UK. Yet, are we really able to grasp what it is like for all the different people concerned? from the migrants themselves, to volunteers, to the French inhabitants. In the new book, Breach, Olumide Popola and Annie Holmes have written eight short stories that explore the crisis through fiction. As it says on the back of the book, the stories give voice to the hopes and fears of both sides. I first asked the authors to read and extract each of the book before telling us what kind of research they did for the book. You'll first hear Olumide Popola read. Um, so I'm going to read an extract from a story called Extending a Hand, which is about two women who are already in, in the so-called jungle in Calais and they're trying to figure out um, how to get some money. But the extract I, I read is, is about something else, but you'll see. Mariam huddles against you. You stand for a second to pull up the tight trousers so they don't expose your backside. There's a gap between your skin and the jeans, you are tiny, but your backside can give any of the big girls a run for their money. Mario says it all the time and laughs. No one makes trousers for your shape. The pair you picked yesterday aren't the loose-fitting ones volunteers think are suitable for this place because you can layer them. Someone said that. You gave her the silent treatment when she was trying to make the case, holding up an oversized pair of second-hand hiking trousers. Why people think they know what's best for you when they are not you, you don't understand. Why you wouldn't know how you wanted to dress at your age is beyond you. The woman didn't say anything else after that. 
She turned her face away for the rest of their one line, the thing they shout during the distribution of food, clothes, building materials, tents, wood. She stayed, but she didn't have any more advice to offer. You had asked for leggings, tighter jeans, something that would make you feel like you were still 24 and not just a refugee squatting in a camp that the locals want gone. Leggings are in fact more comfortable, more practical. You don't have to remember to pull them up when stepping over the endless mud. They won't flop around and you know where they are, close to your body. When it was your turn and you stood in front of the open van doors, doors that had two volunteers on each side with outstretched arms to help everyone queue, she let you scramble to the cardboard box in the back of the vehicle and choose your own pair. She didn't say anything, just pointed. Dignity involves choosing your own outfits, at least, doesn't it? A van has parked opposite you. It seems that the two women inside have already distributed whatever they had fundraised for at home. They are in no hurry to get anywhere. They stretch, leaving the front doors open. On a day like this, sunny with this pretense of calm, it's almost like any other short trip, but even better. The satisfaction of having done good work, important in fact. Without these people coming and some of them staying, the camp would be nothing like it is. You would suffer a lot more, you know that. One of the women is changing a little baby on the passenger seat. The second one now looks at you and smiles. You are tired of the visitors who all need acknowledgement, who need you to engage so they can feel that they are doing the right thing. It's not that you don't appreciate the help. What they do keeps you alive, but the rules of it are annoying. You have, in fact, more important things to do, to plan and arrange the next step, if you can even talk about arranging here. A song pops into your head as the woman noses towards you. Do they know it's Christmas? It is, of course, not Christmas. It is autumn. It is the eighth thing, the helping syndrome you think of, why you avoid the woman. Your mother has told you many times of the great famine and the great song and the humiliation. She used to say, there are no other pictures. We're always the famished skeletons with the kwashoko belly. It's not enough. It's not right that this is all there is. Your father would reply that these were exactly the things that got your mother into trouble. Your mother would counter that at least she was still forming her own opinions. You wonder what the pictures are now of people like you here in the camp. What will stick this time? The muddy clothes you try to keep clean but which hang drap and damp on your bodies? The queuing? The woman arrives. She wears those practical clothes made for outdoor activities. Her jeans are too tight to have any layers underneath but her jacket is loose and has a few square pockets that look like they can hold a whole loaf of bread. And now we'll hear an extract read by Annie Holmes. This is from a story called The Terrier, and it's written in the first person, in the voice of a French woman who has a B&B &B outside Calais, where two teenage um, refugees have been billeted. She's driving them to the camp. I see the camp on the news and the internet, and that's enough. To be frank, I felt some anxiety about driving that way. How abruptly we swept off the motorway and down towards the blue tents. A few police officers stood by a white police van at the bottom of the slope, and I saw that the camp began right there, almost underneath the motorway. The tarmac road turned sharply to the left and away, while the dirt track to the right led into the mass of tents and shacks. There were people everywhere, some walking under the motorway beside the high, concrete, graffiti-covered walls and out the other side, ignoring the police, 
ignoring my little car as I pulled over. Thank you, madame, Omid said as he opened the door. Directly ahead of the car was a simple wooden shed of pale new planks, a storefront faced with chicken wire, a man behind the counter. Beside the shop, on the low swell of a dune, was a tent, no more than a pup tent, but with two sections, one of them open, and a pair of brown shoes visible there side by side. Someone's home. I imagined crawling in, leaving my sandy shoes just inside, out of the rain, crawling through to sleep in there. Too late, I thought of giving Nalini my umbrella. They were gone, walking fast along the dirt track, not looking back. I leaned over to open the passenger door and close it properly. As I locked it, the man behind the plank counter gave me a mild wave of greeting. Like any shopkeeper, in any village, anywhere. That surprised me more than anything. People passed in behind and in front of the car, so I had to wait before I could reverse out safely. A policewoman cradling a rifle ducked her head to look in at me as I drove by, but without much interest. All along the road, drab factories on one side faced the new white fence along the other side, hemming the train tracks and topped with scrolls of white barbed wire. Despite the rain, men paced along the fence, alone or in groups, not hurrying, not like they had places to go, but rather time to kill. Even though I had stayed in the car, barely opening the door at the camp entrance, I felt that I must wash my hands when I got home. I felt gritty, as though I had in fact crawled into that pup tent. This is what comes of getting too close, I told myself. You lose all perspective. I kept myself busy with laundry, and then I picked fruit in the orchard, but my mind was on the world, the underworld, that I'd glimpsed from its edge the figures pacing the high white fence along the railway line, shoulders up against the cold, hands deep in coat pockets, dark heads bent. Like figures from history or documentaries, I realised. Like second-hand memories of war. Thank you. Thanks, uh, both of you. So, um, so this book is a fiction book, but I understand that you... Uh, went to Calais to do some research uh, for the book. Could you um, could you tell us a bit about about that and, and the research that you did? Well, we went to Calais. I went twice. Um, I think Annie went one time, and uh, and we went to and we conducted interviews. But um, I would say I will give her version, but I would say quite informally. So they weren't set up through anyone in a way. So I arrived, the first time I arrived, I arrived with a bunch of volunteers who were bringing donations from the UK and they came down in a convoy and I um, joined them in Dover, drove over with them and volunteered the first day. And then I stayed on and chatted to people and asked randomly around who wanted to, who was uh, willing to be interviewed. And they always knew it was for a fiction book that, in a way, we weren't going to use their stories like the journalists did, journalists do. Mm. Um, and if you want to pitch in, and then you can... Sure. So the second time I that Olu went, I went as well. I couldn't go the first time because I didn't have a visa yet. Um, and we drove with friends. And, of course, it made a big difference that Olu had been before and knew people. And I, I must say, I was coming from a... Um, documentary film background I was being quite sort of formal and I wanted to meet organisations and be introduced by people who are trusted by the refugees 
And I always said, no, you can just walk up to anyone. I said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. And of course, that's exactly what I did. Mm. Because it does... People quite happy to talk to you? Mostly. Um, no. Some were, some weren't. Wouldn't you say, Olu? Yeah, I would say. And also men were quite happy. Yeah. Maybe not, you know, again, not everyone, but it was almost impossible to do this with women. They weren't happy to just be chatted up. They were not, most of the time, even avoiding eye contact. And men generally wanted to chat. They were really willing to, to talk to you. They were not always willing to be interviewed. Mm. Because we did try to record. So also that we have a record of stories. Because there's a lot going on when you first arrive. And there's a lot of impressions. And it's impossible to keep all of that in your mind. Mm. And did you talk to, I, I take you talk to a variety of people, so not just refugees themselves, but uh, other people as well? Yes, volunteers, and also through, you, you know, hanging out with volunteers, you pick up things, so you have your own impressions. Um, I chatted to, uh, um, or both of us, we, we were hung out with one volunteer for a while. And And what was your impressions and experiences uh, from Calais maybe compared to your sort of preconceptions and your expectations for example well I'd say that um, as I think you can hear from the extracts we read mm. that there's um, it had the camp had and maybe still has but I think it's changed quite a bit a very particular environment and a very particular mix of people so my my experience, I'd say, was shifted a great deal between the first impression of enormous diversity and everyone getting on, and it took me by surprise that it was it felt kind of convivial, and um, that people were having like a village. It felt like a village. Mm. Um, and then I think it takes a bit more time and spending more time and talking to people to understand the the very the various undercurrents which are not always the undercurrents I was expecting. Um, I think there's a lot of um, support and a lot of people talked about the way, for instance, different Muslim groups got on and there were certainly great friendships across divides, but also people did keep to themselves, keep to certain sort of language groups for obvious reasons, I'm sure. Um, and the role of... How, how the volunteers very engaged varied enormously. But I think there were some quite extraordinary experiments going on. I think it was Olu who said it was like one of her characters. He said it was it's like a laboratory. So there were quite extraordinary attempts at filling the gap that should have been filled, I would say, by international organizations or national governments. So I think there was a, a high degree of people really from outside trying to be supportive in various ways. Um, mm, do, you, do you share yeah. the, that experience, Olumide? I, I, I do, and I think um, we might, I mean, you will correct me, but I think we're a little bit more critical of the volunteers in our fiction than we encountered on on because everybody was quite amazing. But yeah. obviously when we're looking at the overall picture and we're thinking about under yeah, undercurrents or motivations. So I can't say that some of the criticism that comes through through the stories or that might look like a criticism is not something I've picked up directly 
on the ground in a way. Mm. But you think about the motivation, why people go there, why they stay, and trying to place this in an overall picture of the whole so-called crisis. And how come you wanted to write this, um, uh, write fiction based on um, on Calais? Where where did that idea come from, and, and what were you hoping to achieve with um, writing from well, from fiction, which I guess is is quite unusual uh, in this particular case? For me, there are two angles. One is I am a fiction writer, so I'm not a journalist. I don't really do a lot of non-fiction, and when I do non-fiction, it's uh, it's very different essay. Uh, essayistic style but the other was it was uh, a commission so that, that was a call out from Pyrene Press for this and it was always meant to be fiction and I think it spoke to me certainly because it allowed me to be a fiction writer and do exactly what Annie just described to tease out characters and tease out more than what's on the ground that yes there are great people helping and you know there's people in great need but to look for the story underneath I was interested in that because that's what I do yeah I think I took because I've done more of kind of oral history oral narratives I've published other books of that sort it was quite a revelation to me um, how different it was I thought that I would be working from interviews and then doing some fictionalizing but actually, of course, to make a real story is something quite, quite different. To find out more about all our guests and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. In our next episode, I will talk to Lucy Hoville about her new book on refugees and belonging in Africa. There'll also be a discussion with Dr. Sarah Fine and Professor Christopher Heath-Wellman on what sort of selection criteria states are morally permitted to use when they admit immigrants. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.